My name is Shub Saran, and this is a podcast series where I explore the life of musicians on and off stage. I'm making this series to ask what it means to be a musician today in the hopes that I can better understand what we do and why we choose to do it. Welcome to another Q&A podcast episode where I'll be answering some of the burning questions that you have for me. Here we go. Abhinav Behal asks, have you ever wanted to sing in your music? I have always wanted to sing and most of the music I do listen to is vocal music. But I really cannot sing and feel like most of my musical ideas are best suited for instruments rather than vocals. That being said, I have collaborated with some really incredible singers and I love producing songs with vocalists, including a few songs on two of my EPs featuring Hannah Sumner and Jay Soto. On my most recent album English, If you listen very closely to some of the synth pads, you'll find that I did actually sing on this album. Of course, the vocal pads are buried under many, many layers of synths, guitar, and saxophone. But the idea was to create a bed of sound that felt a little bit more human. Miles the Watt asks tips for improvising better. Your sound is so satisfying yet spicy. Well, thank you so much. That feels incredible to hear because my soloing is something I've really struggled with in the past. It took me many years to figure out what my sound is. And of course, it's something I'm still figuring out now. The first thing I realized about my playing a few years ago was that I wasn't really grooving and listening to things around me to the extent that I probably should have been. And one of the first things I did was to fix my time. Just making things feel good and groove in the context that it was in. Not just in a funk or R&B context, but generally making things groove even in a more free and open time feel as well. Which meant a lot of metronome exercises and groove exercises and also having the very good fortune of being able to play with some really, really incredible drummers. The other thing I tried to focus on was repetition. Creating melodies that felt like they were developing and phrases that I could sing back, rather than relying too much on scale patterns. The only advice I would give is to lean into the parts of your playing that don't feel like they're all the way there yet. Get comfortable listening to your weaknesses and the minutia of your playing that needs a little bit more work, and then really focus hard on those things. That's what has helped me, and it also helps keep practicing fresh and productive. Tanvik107 asks, In your early years as a guitarist, were you largely self-taught? If yes, what were the struggles? 
Yes, so I was self-taught for most of my growing up years. When I first started playing the guitar, I took a few lessons here and there, and then did a year of classical guitar lessons when I was around 11 or 12. But from the ages of 12 till I went to Berkeley when I was 19, I was really just learning how to play on my own by watching videos online and piecing together information from friends who were taking lessons. But mostly just playing along to songs that I liked. There were parts of learning the guitar that way that were extremely rewarding. For example, I learned to appreciate the specifics of tone and shapes on the guitar because everything I was doing was by ear or it was extremely visual. I think I was also able to develop a technique that was really specific to my own fingers because I didn't have anybody showing me how to do anything different or correcting my technique. But that being said, I did really struggle as well and I don't recommend being completely self-taught if playing the guitar is something you're really drawn to. I had all these sounds and chord shapes that I was familiar with but I had no idea how to name them and then manipulate them. It was only later that I learned the names of the notes I was actually playing and learned how to name chords like major 7 or minor 7 or dominant 7. And once I learned how to name the sounds I liked, I was then able to deconstruct them and create my own versions of them, opening the door to really understanding the intricacies of the fretboard. Bryce Cakes asks, who are some of your favorite slash most influential composers from a melodic standpoint? Also, favorite composers slash musicians from a harmonic standpoint? Of course, there are a ton of people I would need to mention to be able to begin to answer this question fully. But I can talk about my earliest inspirations, which I think paved the way for me to then appreciate all of the other musical heroes who came after that. From a melodic standpoint, Initially, I was inspired by a lot of straightforward punk rock vocal melodies. But I think my melodic playing really started to take a turn when I was introduced to a band called Indian Ocean, which is an Indian fusion band based out of Delhi. The guitarist at the time, Sushmit Sen, plays the guitar in this really beautiful, linear way with a lot of open strings ringing out, similar to maybe a sarod or a sitar. It was the first time I was hearing a guitarist not rely too much on scale shapes, but rather improvising horizontally across the neck, oftentimes playing full melodies only on one string, which is something I still do a lot today. This solo from a song called Kandisa is something that I transcribed before I even knew what transcribing was. And I'm pretty sure parts of this technique still remain in my guitar playing today. From a harmonic standpoint, one of the first songs that I became obsessed with that had harmony that wasn't diatonic is a song called Nemesis by Aaron Parks which sort of became my gateway into jazz and jazz-adjacent music. I remember listening
listening to this over and over again, transcribing both the guitar and piano solos so many times. And I've probably performed this song with almost every version of my band over the past 11 years. I probably first fell in love with it because of this rock groove in Seven, played by Eric Harland, that starts the song. But then, when the harmony comes in, I had never heard chords sound so evil and ominous before. In an interview that I watched with Aaron Parks, he talks about how he wanted to recreate the sound of a thunderstorm on the piano. And I think that's exactly what it sounds like. There's something about this A-flat minor going to E minor, which is just the coolest sound to me. Two seemingly unrelated chords that work so well together. And that idea of chords that shouldn't work well together, but do, carries on in a lot of the music that I write today. However, the thing that really ties it together for me, my biggest obsession in this song, is the B-octave ostinato figure that continues for most of the song and ties these seemingly unrelated chords together. I have this theory that the songs we become obsessed with are songs that contain elements of musical concepts that we like across all songs and all genres. For example, the ostinato figure that single note or single pattern that works over all the chords in a given song and ties the harmony together, I find versions of that in almost every song that I end up loving. And I end up loving songs that have some version of that concept. Whether it's Gretchen Parlato or Blink-182 Or the new Halsey record. Don't call me by my name. That short, simple pattern that repeats is something that will always pull me in, and has always been pulling me in since I was barely a teenager. Siguri Abesekere asks motivation with three exclamation marks and one question mark. The simple answer is that I love making things. I love writing music. I love creating songs with people. And I love working on this podcast. It's extremely fun. But the word fun doesn't begin to describe what exactly that feeling is. Because it's not always a positive experience. Sometimes making music or being a musician can be really grueling and really heartbreaking. But even in those moments where it's not the funnest, it's still meaningful and purposeful. And that's my motivation. I get up in the morning because I can't wait to feel like I have purpose, like I'm connected to something bigger than just me, and that I'm adding value to something. But motivation is a fickle thing. And feeling motivated is not a constant state of mind. There are many moments where you just don't feel motivated. And I've come to understand that that is a necessary part of doing things that give you meaning. Sometimes you lose that motivation, and that's okay. In the absence of that motivation, what really helps is a daily routine of writing, 
creating, and practicing, even when it feels really hard. It's about the discipline of acting on goals that you set for yourself. Knowing that you may not complete the goal today, but you have chipped away at it a little bit more. Getting closer to writing another couple of measures of that new song, or writing a few more sentences in that podcast script, or picking up the guitar for a few minutes to practice that song you need to learn. And once you get closer and closer to completing goals like releasing that album or mixing that single, you look back and compare it to what you've achieved so far, where you started and where you are now. Just knowing that you're further than you were a month ago or a year ago is really where the motivation comes from, at least for me. Thank you very much for sending in these great questions. Even though I may not get to every question in every episode, I do read every single question and email and will make sure I answer some version of your questions in a future Q&A or in the form of an episode. So please keep sending me these great questions on Instagram, Facebook, or you can email me at info at Thank you.